Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Hello. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It is good to be with you. I am in Los Angeles, California, and I have on the program today Larissa Pham. She has a debut memoir in essays out on Catapult Press. It is called Pop Song, and it was published earlier this year to great acclaim. I had a really good time talking with Larissa Pham about her life and her wonderful book. Larissa Pham's writing has appeared all over the place. In the Paris Review Daily, Guernica, Granta, The Nation, The Believer, and elsewhere. She's also a teacher. She has taught at the Asian American Writers Workshop, The New School, and Kundaman. My conversation with Larissa Pham about her debut memoir and essays entitled Pop Song coming up in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Custom House Books, publisher of the novel Burnt Coat by Sarah Hall. This is Sarah Hall's first novel in six years. She has twice been nominated for the Man Booker Prize, and she has now written and published an incredibly timely, incredibly elegant novel that is not only about the spread of a deadly virus, but is also about immigration and about women in the art world. That's Burnt Coat by Sarah Hall, available from Custom House Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. Go get your copy wherever books are sold. I should also mention that Sarah Hall will be a guest on this program next week. Burnt Coat is the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. I interview the book club authors on this program. For more on that, visit thenervousbreakdown.com. You can sign up. I am in the middle of Burnt Coat right now. I've been reading it over the past day or two. 
and it is just wonderful. It's an excellent book. Another excellent book. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I feel like a broken record. I keep talking about all these great books on this show, and I am sincere in doing so. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and I was lamenting how many great books there are that don't get the noise that I feel they deserve, the attention that I feel that they deserve. And then on the other hand, there are all these great books, so much excellent work being done by so many writers. And I was sort of wondering aloud, like, are we in a golden age of literature? (laughs) I know these terms get thrown around and it's a little bit silly. And I, you know, I certainly couldn't say definitively, maybe it's always been this way. Maybe there's always been a ton of great work being done. And so much of it we don't know about because we can't possibly keep up. But my word, there is just a lot of amazing writing being done and a lot of amazing books being published, often on the periphery. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show, more than 700 episodes and counting, is all available to you, the listener, for free. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. This show has its own YouTube channel. The entire archive is on YouTube now. Go subscribe at YouTube. It's free. You can also listen on Stitcher, like basically wherever you get your podcasts. Every single episode is available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. So, you know, the holidays are coming up. If you're a regular listener of this program, please know that you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. Just a dollar. Throw a dollar in the hat. Uh, we The show needs more Patreon support to sustain itself, to keep it going. I want to keep doing this, and I'd love to be able to keep doing two episodes a week. So if you have it in you, you can support the show. There are different tiers, different levels of support. You can go as low as a dollar a month. That's fine. If you uh, have the means, you can move up the scale. As you move up the scale, you get stuff. You can get a t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. I'll send you a voice message on your birthday wishing you a happy birthday. I will sing you happy birthday. Just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. That's Patreon dot com slash other P-P-L pod. Support the show. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Otherwise, uh, I've been trying to give regular updates on what's going on with me and my book. I have a novel coming out next May. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. IG Publishing is putting it out. And right now, I'm in a bit of a holding pattern, which is not abnormal. I've got the blurbs. The cover has been designed. I know they're working on the interior. I still need to do a few more edits but it's been relatively quiet and we're heading into the holidays. So there's a lot of this when you publish a book. There are little flurries of activity and then it gets quiet and then there's another flurry and it's been fine and noticeably less stressful than the first time that I did this when I published uh, my debut novel. I remember hand-wringing a lot more about what was going on and why wasn't I hearing from anybody. But it was my first time. I didn't know what to expect. Now, now I know to expect these lulls. And aside from all that, aside from all that, you know, quiet, I'm also continuing to do the legwork to get the word out about the book, like PR and marketing stuff, reaching out to people, trying to drum up interest in uh, coverage which you sort of got to do if you want to fight for your book so uh, I'll say it again I've been uh, you know asking people who are listening if you are a blogger or a literary critic or a journalist or a literary podcaster and you would like a galley of uh, my novel be brief and tell them everything just email me at letters at other let me know. I'll put you on the galley list. We'll get you a galley. All right. So let's get to the main event, my conversation with today's guest, Larissa Pham. Her debut memoir and essays is called Pop Song. And it is available now from Catapult Press. Larissa is a very bright and... Uh, very astute observer. She's also very knowledgeable about visual art, which filters into pop song. And I appreciated that because I am not as astute as I wish that I were when it comes to that stuff. So this book was a good education for me. It's also uh, an emotional book about relationships difficulty of relationships and young love and it's also uh, subversive at times bracingly honest all the things you want from a memoir in essays so a delightful time meeting Larissa Pham and excited to catch her as she makes 
this great debut. So here we go. This is my conversation with Larissa Pham, and her new book, One More Time, is called Pop Song. The book had a couple working titles before then, and the first one that I came up with was Somewhere Away From Here, which kind of gestures at like the yearning and the travel parts of the book a little bit more. And then when I sold it, it was titled How to Run Away, which I hated. It just didn't feel like authentic to the spirit of the book. And so I really wanted to come up with something new, but nothing was quite landing. And then it just kind of like appeared to me in a dream, like this title pop song. And it was more like a feeling title than like really directly tied to any anything in the book, like any specific passage. But I wanted the reader to like encounter it like a pop song. And I wanted like the sort of like way that you maybe are a little bit more open when you listen to pop music to be the same way that someone approaches this book. So that was really like the spirit that I arrived at. And I think it worked out pretty well. Although I think people tend to like shelve it in music sometimes in like small bookstores. So it's always like interesting to see like where people have placed it. Yeah. I, you know, I, my uh, first novel was named, it, it was kind of like uh, precious. It was attention period, deficit period, disorder period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was in mental health, like in every bookstore I went into. And it was frustrating yeah. to me because I was like, no, it's a novel. <laughs> but, you know, I get the feeling title and I get, you know, having read the book, um, why you chose it. Because your book is concerned with longing and mm-hmm. desire and thwarted expectations and the difficulties of uh, being in relationship to other human beings and intimacy Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those things are the concern, I think, of good pop music or often are the concern of good pop music. You know, it's kind of like a breakup song, this book, mm-hmm. in a way, right? Yeah. And, and people have likened it to like a breakup album, which is which is interesting. That's not how I had thought of it when I was writing it. But I can see how like someone encountering it would have that impression of it for sure. Well, it's got some it's like an elegiac. It has like an elegiac kind of tone, kind of mournful at times. And then. It's also, I think, a reflection on your evolution as a person, like vis-a-vis the relationships that you've had, like intimate relationships, but also like friend relationships and maybe even like your relationship with yourself. But it's working on multiple tracks. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I feel like Breakup Album is a fair characterization. I was kind of, in a way, I was kind of dreading it. I was like, oh God, it's coming. You can sort of feel it coming towards the end of the book. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's going to be like some kind of shakeup for sure. Yeah. And then that's also why I decided to title that section Breakup Interludes. Like I wanted it to be clear that like, you know, we were, we were marching towards this, this path at the end of the text. Why is relating to other human beings so difficult? Like not just intimate relationships, but just human beings on any level. Uh, I guess sometimes it's easy. Sometimes. It's, it's it's hard, but it's also, I think, like, the way that it's so easy makes it hard because it's really easy to, like, be close to someone or, like, it can be, but then it's, like, kind of navigating the consequences of that closeness that makes things hard because, like, then things become complicated or, you know, people want different things. And I, I think that's where, like, the real difficulty emerges. Yeah. Like, I, I – this is going to – I mean – I think of George, you know, George Burns was, <laughs> uh, I, I don't, he's like this old, like he's even like pre-boomer. He lived to be a hundred, but he was this comedian guy, he smoked cigars all the time. 
like George Burns and Gracie Allen were like comedy people in the 20th century who got married and had this like long, ha like happy marriage. And they, I think in the popular culture, they were sort of held up as this ideal because they were funny. They made each other laugh. They seemed to get along. They did specials together, that kind of thing. And I guess I always like think of them when I think of some idealized version of how intimacy is supposed to go. And I think too, that the narratives that were fed by popular culture often give us a distorted view of how intimate relationships work, you know, and we kind of hold ourselves up against these idealized versions of romantic love. And when mm -hmm. the actual does not measure up, we feel either like some sort of letdown, you know, we feel like the other person has let us down or disappointed our expectations, or we feel like we haven't lived up, you know, or maybe some combination, but yeah, uh, I yeah. guess like with George and Gracie, it was like, well, maybe it is easy for some people, but that's like the <laughs> outlier. I don't know, but it seems like most people, it's a challenge, you know, to be in relationship with somebody intimately over a long period of time. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because the narratives, I mean, they're so varied, but like, the narratives in pop culture and like, I mean, in literature or in movies, like that's kind of what we learn from. Like, I don't know, not very many people I know, like say like, oh yeah, my parents are an example of like, you know, like the pinnacle of a romantic relationship. Like, I think we learn things from our parents, but I don't know if like being in a relationship is like one thing that we do learn. So we are looking into like these outside sources that are kind of far from us to figure out how to be in community with other people or to be close with other people. Yeah. I mean, my parents actually like really get along and have been a great example. But like you say romantic love. I mean, I feel like that's sort of something. I don't mean to sound like a, a total, uh, I don't know. What's the word for it? Uh, like a Debbie Downer. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean like the romantic part of a relationship tends to be at the beginning. There can still be some kind of romance, hopefully through the years, but I mean, it, things evolve and change, you know, it can't be at that sort of fever pitch of like, you know, youth and young love forever. Like if it's going to mm -hmm. continue, right. Things are going to change and eventually you're just going to be like doing laundry and hanging out, you know, and, <laughs> and, and then what? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, that's the part of love that my book doesn't really get to. It kind of dwells in like that, maybe that first two thirds, first half feeling of like, having a crush on someone and like being really infatuated and like really wanting to get to know them and then like getting to know them and realizing that they're getting to know you and like, you know, all that stuff that that uproots. Like I was really interested in like that moment, like the, the moment where you kind of open yourself to another person, but it's true. There's this whole like range of experience, like after that happens where like, I wouldn't say it becomes normal, but you know, like you, you begin to like share your life with someone in a very like, um, sort of quotidian way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it just exposes you, you know, that's yeah. what I, that's what I yeah. find. Um, you know, yeah, there's like the, there's like a, a lot of, um, vulnerability goes into it. And you, just the longer you're with someone, it's inevitable. They're going to kind of see you at your worst and, mm -hmm. and vice versa. And there's no, yeah. avoid, there's no avoiding it, you know, it's just going to happen. So hopefully you're with somebody who can, tolerate it and you know and and that you can tolerate in them that's kind of the part of the bargain it seems but i think that it makes sense to me that you would focus on the 
the parts of relating or the parts of a relationship that you just described because the chronology of this book follows you over the course of about a decade right and mm -hmm. you're young you know like i'm yeah i'm middle-aged guy so you know <laughs> my pop songs are different <laughs> um you know but this is about somebody who is coming of age high school to college through your 20s and sort of navigating first love and serious relationships and kind of coming to coming to understand who you are and what you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, uh, you know, there's another book in you in a different phase where it'll be a different song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in that too. I think I'm, I'm at the point where I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning the notes to that song. And I mean, this whole past year has really been an exercise in realizing how much I don't know about things, which I think is like something we always encounter at different points in our lives. Like we think, we know everything and then we realize we we just hit a plateau and there's so much more yeah that that we will feel very stupid <laughs> in the face of i just feel yeah i feel like i've come to terms with the fact that i'm just like professionally wrong like i'm yeah. wrong about everything <laughs> like like every and, and like yet i continue like even today i've probably said something where i it was like characterized by some degree of certainty you know but it's a it's always a farce like i don't know anything practically and i'm uh I'm consistently like humbled by how little I get right. And, you know, especially when I take a long view and I look back at my youth, some of the things that I did and said and attitudes that I took on, you know, I guess that's life. I guess you're making progress and evolving, but it's like a useful thing to remember that most of the time I don't have any clue what's going on. Maybe all of the time. Yeah. I, I found it pretty liberating to realize that like, I could write more than one book. I think when you're young, like there's this pressure for your debut to be like the best thing you've ever written. And like, you know, it's, it's going to be like your ticket to like a new kind of literary or creative life. But like my first book was like a novella and that came out when I was like 22 or 23. And like, I think having published that young, I was like, I think at first I was like, I thought I was going to you know, get things out of it that I didn't. But then I think I also realized like, oh, you can say more than one thing. And like, your thinking will evolve over time. And I think that has been really comforting to think about, like, having had pop song, pop song come out like this year, like, I know that there's another book in me that's gonna, you know, make its way to the surface in about five years. Yeah. And like, my, my thoughts will be very different than I'm sure. Well, and like, you know, to bring in another like motif that you're working on, I think in the book, it, it has your book has quite a lot to do with visual art, because you have a background as a painter. Mm -hmm. And you like, like, you have an art history degree. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. I, I have a double degree in um, art history and studio art. Okay. So I was often yeah. shamed as I was reading your book by how little I know about visual art and you know how uncultured I am. I was like, <laughs> I'm like reading your book and like looking up different painters on Wikipedia to just try to get like conversant about them. But one of the things that I think is good to remember when you write a book as personal as pop song, I can relate to this, is that like A... Like, don't take it yourself too seriously. People get that it's a book. And then B, you know, if we're thinking about this visual art idea, it's like a snapshot of who you were mm -hmm. in time. Like you're capturing yourself in a particular moment as you remember it, you know, through the filter of your memory in whatever mood you happen to be in when you were writing it. 
And yeah, it's just like anything. You fix it in time and then it exists on its own terms and then you'll take more snapshots or paint other paintings down the road, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 great that you use that metaphor of a snapshot too, because there's quite a quite a bit of photography in the book and like I, I didn't read my write my thesis on like anything well, I mean it was relatively specific. It was on um self portraiture by Asian American female photographers. Um, but I was really interested in like the history of like photography and photography as an art form. And I, yeah, I think like something so specific about it is like, it really is just like frozen time. Like there's not really a lot of ways to like stretch out the durational process of a photo. And yeah, I think it's, it's good to let a creative work like exist in the time that it entered the world. Well, and I also, uh, should bring up the fact that you came of age on the internet in ways that I did not. And you were like a Tumblr diarist. Is that a... Yeah, a, yeah. In yeah. your youth? Okay. But Tumblr, in my limited understanding of it, is it was a more visual platform than maybe others, right? It was kind of like memes yeah, and photos. So. Yeah. Oh, it, it, I think it started really as like a text-based like blogging platform but then i think with the re i mean we can we can really go into the history of this now but i think with the reblog function which allowed you like a retweet to like basically just basically take something that could be an aesthetic or or a piece of text and put it on your feed i think that really boosted like the images because then images were being recycled and like things started resembling like mood boards more than um you know, like journals. Yeah. So I was, I was present for that shift, which was really interesting. Okay. Okay. But you started like textually writing yeah, and yeah. then you kind of followed the, like these, these platforms evolve. Right. And I think when yeah, I, yeah, totally. I never, I don't think I was ever on Tumblr like personally, but I would visit it when it would be linked or something. And it seemed to be mostly images that I would encounter with text or some sort of meme or something, you know, somebody mm -hmm. had doctored it, but it's interesting to consider your interest in visual art and photography, and then also the fact that you came of age online in this digital environment. And I, I mean, if I feel like the digital universe has impacted every single art form, every media, but mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to think of one that got more radically hit than photography. Like I have a buddy, I'm 46, so I'm, I have a buddy who's a photographer who you know, I went to, went to uh, Savannah College of Art and Design and was working in dark rooms and was there right at the shift to digital, as was I as a film student. Mm -hmm. And I mean, now with a phone having these incredible like camera capabilities, like so much of what professional photographers used to do is now sort of in everybody's pocket. I mean, I, mean, mm -hmm. I don't mean to, I don't mean to diminish like the skill of a professional photographer, but I'm just saying that the technology has really leveled the playing field. Um, yeah, and yeah. change the way that we represent ourselves, like everything from like Instagram filters to portrait mode and, you know, all these different things, these ways that we have to capture our lives and capture ourselves. Yeah, I guess I would say that like the, the currency or the value of the image has really like shifted over the years. Like I think the accessibility of photography makes it really easy to like capture a memory or like make a nice picture and, and share it and be a photographer in a sense. But it, I, I feel like we, we have reached a point of image saturation. That is really interesting. Like, like images kind of exist just for the sake of images and photos. I think, gosh, it's like they're a language that kind of 
makes it hard to know when you're looking at a photo, like, am I looking at a photo because it's information or am I looking at a photo because it's important as a photograph, like as a, as a visual piece of like art that someone put together. I think that line blurs a lot. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see. I, 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 I have a million photographs on my phone. I never look at them. Yeah. Ever. Like I'm never gonna either. I'm not somebody who looks backwards a lot and like sifts through old photo. I mean, occasionally like, like my iPhone will tell me like this happened five years ago mm-hmm. and it's like some video of my kids when they were babies. And I'm like, Oh, you know, but I can't do that. I cannot, maybe, maybe in my old age I will, but I sort of doubt it. It's too much, you know, to, and plus it's all a mess. I'm not organized. It's all in a yeah. drop. It's in a Dropbox somewhere, but image saturation resonates with me. It, it just feels like too much at some point. And that isn't to say that I can't appreciate a beautiful photograph. It's just that I feel inundated and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know. It just, uh, maybe, maybe everybody having a camera in their pocket, I guess it's a good thing, but, uh, I don't know. Like I'm I'm thinking about like the great street photographers of yore or who's the French guy who like never appeared on camera himself, but took all those black and whites in Paris, you know, Um, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to blank on it. I'm thinking name. of like three different guys who could maybe be that guy. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, who's that guy now? Like, how do you distinguish yourself? I mean, I, I guess this is sort of like a, a, you know, a side, a side route conversation. But I think about that with, uh, when it comes to photography, just because uh, it seems like such a hard profession to sort of like uh, find a lane in anymore, just because it's so overdone. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why like, we think of photography as like, I mean, many things, but I think like it can feel like a tool, but like the reason why you choose one photographer over another is like their eye. Right. So that, that becomes something that I think, like, I think we're drawn to, or at least I, I feel myself being drawn to like when I think about like, and I think like more broadly, like in terms of people who are like, you know, like spreading or, um, not spreading, but like sharing information. Like I'm more drawn to the people, like everyone can do, many different things and speak many different languages or use many different mediums but like when someone's like approach feels like interesting or like unique or like they have like an interesting voice or perspective like I feel like there's just so much stuff out there I'm more drawn to like that yeah yeah I am too I love I mean I love a good photograph and I feel like certain people do have a knack I also sometimes tell myself that it's it's also it has something to do with the volume of shots taken like, mm-hmm. not only do you have to have a good eye, but you also have to have the compulsion to constantly be photographing stuff or to photograph a ton of stuff. Like, I lose my patience. I take, like, three snapshots of my children, and, like, in every single one, like, one of them is looking away from the camera or, like, <laughs> has their eyes closed. But, like, I think a good photographer is either able to get it right, you know, the first time or or just sit there and keep snapping until it's done. But and then also has the patience to go back through and sift through and find the ones that work, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that sifting is the hardest part. Like, I, I feel like the comparison is, like, unavoidable, but it feels like writing a memoir, you know? It's like, oh, here are all these, like, moments, and now it's time to make sense of them and, like, put them into a nice, like, container that, you know, maybe isn't narrative, but, like, I have to make sense out of, like, all the stuff. Can I ask you a question about this? Like yeah. you write this book, you obviously get it into a form that you feel good about. Your publisher, you know, buys the book, acquires it, it wants to publish it, so you have other people feeling good about it. 
in the lead up to publication, did you feel, find yourself on any kind of roller coaster where you're like, I love this. I, I can't, it's came together. It's, I did it. And then also like, this is terrible. Oh my God. I'm, you know, like this is, do you, do you had any, did you have any ups and downs in your own consideration of the work? I think, you know what? I, I felt really good about it the entire time that I was writing it. I think because I was writing it in pretty much near isolation and I could really get into the text and I was just like, I'm just going to like, put my whole heart into this and like I'm gonna go sicko mode I'm gonna write whatever I want it's gonna be printed so like if someone wants to like you know read it they're gonna have to like spend $26 <laughs> and I was like so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go all in and that felt really amazing and I, f I felt and I still feel like really good about the the text as a whole I think what did put me on a roller co coaster was thinking about other people reading it and like I would I would like be in bed like reading someone's like really mean review of something and I'd be like, oh man, like what if what if someone decides <laughs> to read my book in really bad face and like, you know, they just like take something really personally or like, you know, that that was what I was worried about. I was like, I just wanna I was like, Oh, I hope people are really generous with it <laughs> which which they have been unfailingly. So Well that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you're also very good at writing about art and visual things and color like you you're you're constantly describing colors with like really um great detail and like specific color names that i think are related to paints and are often mm -hmm. related to paints and i i envy this in you like to the ability to sort of distinguish these different gradations of color and to have like a i don't know i i think the same way about nature writers who like know the name of every plant and tree and animal mm. around them. Yeah. Like I walk through my world. I have like, again, this gets back to me being wrong about everything and not knowing much. Like I'm just wandering through this planet. I couldn't name anything practically around me when it comes to nature. Um, but you do a great job of writing about art, even art that the reader has not yet seen, you know, that's a, a particular challenge. I think for your book is that you had to have a, a sense that the reader might not have a line on these particular images that you're describing, but you do a good job of, of drawing it out. And you also made me so curious that I went and looked. So thank you for broadening yeah. my horizons. <laughs> oh, great. Well, that, that was the hope. I mean, I wanted to make sure that I was writing about stuff that people could look up and, and find, I didn't want to be like, so, so, so obscure that, that someone would feel like boxed out by what I was talking about. And I, and I wanted to, and I, I always want to write about art with like, the sense that I'm helping someone come to an interpretation of it. It will be my interpretation, but like, I don't want someone to feel lost when they're looking at something. And I don't want someone to feel lost when they're reading something that I've written. So I, I guess that, yeah, that is, that is nice to hear. Um, I also love animal and plant names and there's this app called iNaturalist, which is free and it's really good. And you can, um, you can take pictures of things and upload it and it'll give you like an identification. And if you select the one that you think matches up, then amateur biologists and, and like, um, botanists in your area will like confirm whether you're right or not. This might be so, the solution to all my problems right here. It's amazing. It's really, really great. But I, yeah, I think, I think when you look at things with specificity, like I am really interested in this idea of like, what are, what are things named? Um, what are things called? And I think part of that is like, I think one's desire to catalog, which I think is tied to being a historian, which is like knowing the provenance of things or how they got their names 
for why they're named the thing that they are. And in the case of colors, like looking at a pigment's history is really interesting. And also like that was a way for me to know that like if I'm referring to a pigment color, someone can look up that color and they'll be, they'll be like, oh, okay, so that was a color of the leaf that she saw. So almost like fact checking. Yeah. 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 So I want to talk to you about pain because I think that's at the heart of like having a crush, being in a relationship that goes south. You know, there's also like a section of the book that deals with BDSM and kind of your self-exploration in that area. But like, this is a part of the appeal, right? Like in it's, it's kind of the irony, you know, is that like part of why we go to like pop songs or we, um, you know, why like stories of romantic love can be so appealing is that there's some, there's like the ache in it, you know, and there's the, mm -hmm. the pain of the, the, the emotions involved and the lost love. But can you talk a little bit about like writing into that space? Um, you said you wrote in isolation and you just kind of went for it. I'm assuming this is like a COVID composition. Yeah. Yeah. So there were, there were some essays that existed pre-COVID, mostly from my column at the Paris Review that I substantially revised and, and added onto for the text. But yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was very lonely when I was, when I was writing this, not, not in a bad way, just lonely for society, but yeah, this question of, of, of yearning or ache or pain, I think I, I was really interested in like, I had, to, I had to figure out, like, why I did the things that I did. I think I had to actually figure out elements of my own psyche before I could write it down. So a great deal of the beginning of the writing was actually kind of doing this excavation of my own life and really, like, going to, like, the back wall of, of my soul um, and, like, seeing what was there. And, and a lot of that came out in the essay, Body of Work, I think. And that was one of the first ones I wrote. And it, it kind of served as a linchpin for exploring this question of, of pain and, and trauma, which I think are things that emerge connected to and out of love, which is like kind of an interesting relationship in of itself. Yeah. All love is trauma in the end. Right. I mean, that's like the irony or like the, I don't know. I think about that sometimes, like even when it goes well, like it eventually is going to be traumatizing. You know? Yeah, it, it shapes you, you know, like it, it molds you and you learn from it for sure. And I think love means that you've made yourself like real love, not like an infatuation, but it means that you've made yourself vulnerable. And with that vulnerability always like is a lot of room for, you know, to be hurt. Well, and then there's death. So I yeah, mean, and I, even, that, even if you're, even trauma. if you're George Burns and Gracie Allen and you're just like smoking cigars and laughing together until you're a hundred, eventually yeah. one of you is going to die. So it's like, you know, there's no escape. Love is going to be tra you know, traumatizing one way or the other. And then there's also like, this is something that I feel like, like women in my life, like friends, maybe also like pop music sensibility. Like I'm kind of a, I'm all over the place musically. I, I can like pop music, but like my wife loves pop music. Like she knows to this day, she knows every top 40 song on the radio, like listens to it once, knows all the words. Like it's kind of a weird gift that she has, but mm -hmm. she loves pop music. And like, I'm not quite there. I don't know. But uh, I feel like romantic longing 
and like the the ache of that romantic longing that shit sells and it's mm-hmm. re- it's relatable and it's also addictive <laughs> um, yeah. in ways that maybe I did not properly appreciate like that is a rich market that's a rich vein to tap romantic longing it it is and it's like why why does it feel so good but it's like that that liminal space i think is really interesting because there's a lot of like uncertainty in it. Um, it's like, it's like, I don't know, like in a TV show or something, like there's so much buildup before like the two main characters get together because like, that's, what's interesting is like a push and pull and the tension and like, will they, won't they like once they get together, like then it's the season finale, you know, then someone has to come up with a problem for them to make it interesting. Right. Well, no, I think there's a passage in your book where you say, like, when I have a crush on somebody, it's like I'm in love with the distance between us. Is that right? Yeah. 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 That's one of my favorite lines. Okay. Me too. That's a good because I feel like that sums it up. Right. I mean, like this this feeling of having a crush is uh, it's interesting because you like nominally you think the crush is on this person. But what you're saying is that like it's actually the feeling of distance. It's like being in love with that that uh, separation and that not knowing, you know, that feeling of like anticipation mm-hmm. and, and uncertainty, like all of those kinds of, like that weird mixture of feelings. Cause it's not all good, you know, it's yeah. not, it's there's like anxiety, there's it, nervousness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so with regard to like BDSM, uh, I want to ask about it as an extension of this sort of dialogue. Uh, I have no experience with it, but I've read about it over the years in different books. And it feels like the physical manifestation in some ways of that kind of admixture that we're just talking about, you know, where it's like, Mm -hmm. it's like a way to sort of actualize those feelings in a physical, um, and that can feel good. Is that, is that, uh... yeah, I mean, I think, I think it means a lot of different things for different people. And I think it's really fascinating to talk to different people who have very different relationships to it than, than I do or did. I think when I was interested in it, like I did see it as a means of, yeah, like expression or like catharsis kind of, or like release even. Um, And it was really interesting to be able to like work through some pretty intense and inarticulable feelings through the body and and through pain and through these like experiences that like I didn't really have language for and that like, I think it's okay to not have language for. Um, but I also think, I mean, so I had this story, um, in this anthology called kink, which is edited by Garth Greenwell and Reese Kwan. And so I was on like some panels with, with various writers at various points early in the year. Cause that's when the book came out. And it was really interesting to hear other people talk about like what they thought kink was or what they thought like BDSM was or what they thought these things were. So I, I feel like in many ways it can be like a sublimation of, desires and anxieties and and curiosities that we're we're not really sure about but i think like each person is going to bring their own personal history to it as well sure and yeah uh, you talk about trauma and you talk about you know working through stuff like you are a survivor of sexual assault as well which Mm -hmm. you write about in the book Uh, i imagine that has maybe something to do with it or am i am i messing up the chronology um 
yeah, so that that chapter does happen. Well, it it yeah, chrono- chronologically it, it happens after like the sort of body of work exploration. But I do know like just coming from a from a trauma informed like background working with survivors of assault cuz I I also did that like as a job for a while like I I was in communications but I also was on the hotline and we all were like pretty well versed in just talking about this stuff. And there was this sense that like we had to be informed about what what BDSM was and like what it looked like and like how that was about power negotiation and how that was really different from like when we would maybe be talking to people who were in abusive relationships. So thinking about like, you know, like what what power differentials can look like and like when that is wanted and when that is unwanted was yeah I mean it was like part of like it was all kind of connected and I think like no one was really like oh yeah like one of these is good and like or like both of these are bad or like you know like it was it was it was all like very connected well I know it's interesting I I hadn't thought about that you know like to being like somebody who's on a trauma hotline and talking to somebody who's describing their relationship if you didn't have a working knowledge of BDSM and somebody just started describing uh, a relationship that involved that could easily be like, wow, this is uh, like there's red flags all over the place, but it could be in, in, in error. You know what I'm saying? Like it could be somebody describing like a consensual BDSM thing as opposed to like a genuinely abusive relationship. Sure. And then you could also have someone who is in like a very intense, you know, maybe like 24 seven, like power exchange or something. But they're like, but wait, like my partner did something that we didn't agree on. And, you know, to someone who doesn't know what, what that is, they could be like, well, you know, you're clearly not in power in this relationship anyway. But to someone who like having the knowledge of like, well, this is like what you guys agreed on. And like this person, you know, violated you in this way, like we're going to help you with it or we're going to talk to you and like figure out like how you can, you know, remedy the situation for yourself. So that was also important, too. You know, it's interesting is that um, in the part of the book where you describe the sexual assault and like the aftermath and sort of sorting it out is that it wasn't entirely clear. At least it took a, a second for you to realize that you had, in fact, been assaulted. Correct. I mean, it's like there's some there, there was some muddle, as I remember it described in the book. And I think that's interesting is that these things can happen and it can be unclear even to the to the victim like how to define it. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Part of that section was taken from an essay that I wrote about that experience many years ago called Showing My Hand at, at the Hairpin, which is, I guess, no longer really up and running. So the original title of that essay was actually Rape Story because it was like I was telling this story to my friend and I was just like, ha like this crazy thing happened. And then my friend was like, Larissa, like that's, that's not a funny story. Like this is, this is a story about a rape. And that was like mind blowing to me and it really made like it kickstarted a lot of things that it, it was why I ultimately ended up deciding I wanted to volunteer on a on a crisis line. But yeah, I mean, the idea that things aren't known until they're articulated seems seems like it holds up because sometimes we have to look at things through other people's eyes or or say them out loud before we know what they are. Yeah, that's wild. To have somebody like a friend of yours, like basically give you the news, you know, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to come to the realization on your own, like, r- like either as it was happening or like right after, but like that, that was the processing, you know, it was like you had to verbalize it to somebody, then have somebody kind of reflect it back at you and help, help you define it. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it is something that happens quite a bit with with survivors of assault. Is like, you know, in the moment, you you don't really know what what is happening, or you're you're just kind of working on getting through the moment, and then later, maybe things can like emerge, or like you know how you really felt about something can emerge. And actually, just to to tie back to the writing more concretely, like it was interesting when I started writing Haunted, the chapter that that appears in my editor was like well what if we really just like preface this about like like we really say like okay like you were assaulted like you know in April of blah 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 and like and and just start the chapter with that and I was like no like I don't want it I don't want it to be like that explicit like I want the reader to realize that I was assaulted at the same time that I did which was like much later because that felt important to me like I didn't want to like frame it in a way that like would be inauthentic to like what my experience had been in the past and like I wanted the narrator to reflect that yeah well and I I appreciated it I appreciated it as a reader because it gave me insight into the fact that there is this kind of delayed reaction sometimes and this coming yeah. into focus after the fact it's an important thing to to understand because you know trauma can be really disorienting right you know you, whatever mm-hmm. it is whether it's surviving an assault or you know there's some terrible accident or whatever it is, you know, they often say that the person, you know, will be a little bit out of it or not have a clear, uh, like a clear understanding of what's either what's going on or what happened. And there should be space for that. Right. You mm-hmm. know, you know, like it's normal, I guess is the point. And it's maybe not something that at first blush would seem normal to somebody who's on the outside looking in. So I just appreciated being reminded of that. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad it worked formally. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, another thing that your book does really well is it travels well. Like, I love the parts where you're taking me out of the country and I get to kind of go on trips with you. Like, I love... Oh, great. I always love love when people go on trips and books and I get to feel like I'm sort of on vacation with them or something. But I I don't know if you said earlier, but wasn't the... There was a, a, a previous working title of this book was what? Running Away From Yourself? Yeah. Or How to Run Away From Yourself? Um, Somewhere Away From Here and then How to Run Away. Okay. Yeah. Um, How to to Run Away. So you're physically running away at times, right? That's kind of what the book is depicting. There's trips to Mexico City. There are trips to Taos in New Mexico um, Mm -hmm. where you're at like a residency, I think, working on this book or working on essays in this book. And then there's like the, the business boondoggle to Shanghai. Yeah. Am I missing anything? Where else was it? Um, I think I think those are those are the major those are the major. major excursions. Yeah, I had a chapter planned about California, but I ended up didn't quite quite fit. Didn't make the cut. Yeah, another okay. another time. <laughs> okay, okay, but I, I feel like you know th- this is another common impulse is to try to I don't know change your situation internally by changing it externally. It's such a common human impulse. I think there can be something to it. Sometimes it does help to get a change of scenery, like in in, in really serious, you know, um, in meaningful ways. Other times, mm-hmm. like you change your scenery and you think it's going to fix everything, and then you get there and you still feel like shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, like there, you're still you. You're, you're still just you. you in a place where you don't have enough money and you can't figure out how to access an ATM. <laughs> and yet, I. I fall for it every time. I love yeah. when people go to Mexico City to try to sort their problems out. It's fantastic. And um, you just talk a little bit about, like, the, I guess, the choice to include 
those experiences in this book about intimacy and art and self-knowledge, like in some, I guess in, in every case, you know, your movements have something to do with art, but you're also doing a great job of describing, you know, the places that you're at, like the descriptions of New Mexico are really beautiful. And I've spent some time down there. So it's like, it really did a great job of evoking that landscape and um, just talk about like, not only like the aesthetic decisions, but also, especially with regard to New Mexico, the, the creative experience of, you know, working on this book in residency and, and just getting the words on the page. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting now, like I haven't meaningfully traveled in about two years. So this idea that I like at one point wrote a book or like was going to write a book and was like, oh yeah, I'll just, you know, it'll be about art and travel and intimacy, like three great things that go great together. <laughs> right, um, right. Like the idea that I did that now, like I feel like the idea of, of geographic movement is much more fraught. And that was something that I found myself talking about a lot when I was first talking about this book, because, you know, it was like all the interviews that I was doing were like in, in, you know, deep pandemic time. Not that this isn't, but I have always, I guess it's like, what did I do for the book? And what did I do for myself? It's like, well, realistically, actually, I did it all for myself. And then it went to the book. It's funny to look at it backwards. But like, it's, it's like this originated in me, which is that I always do have this, this impulse to run away and this impulse to disappear and this impulse to like find something larger than myself. And I think they're all kind of related. And I think like, I wouldn't say that travel is necessarily like priming oneself for like an encounter with the sublime, but I think that going somewhere that's not familiar to you can kind of change your perspective in the same way that like a really beautiful painting can, if that makes sense. So I was interested in, I guess, the effect of these things, like it, all these disparate sources kind of have the same effect on me and so I was I was interested in writing about that and it just so happened that I had been to these places and I had had these encounters with art and having had them I, I like I could have just written about the painting I guess but it was more interesting to write about the place as well and I do I do love like travel and food writing also I think it's really fun yeah. um, and it was also a good way I think to challenge myself and be like well what does it mean to be an American in Mexico City, or like to be Asian American in the middle of Shanghai, like where I don't speak the language. Like what, what is the implication of this? Yeah. Well, I, okay. A couple things. First of all, it's making me, I think that taking the pandemic into account, I think like I'm extra ready for travel writing because I love to travel and haven't done, and I have young kids, so it makes it even harder. I don't know when, when's the last time I took like a serious trip somewhere fun. It's been a while, but I love that part of it. You talk about, I think you and I share something in common. Like I think for some people, the idea of flying halfway around the world into some city in some country that's thousands of miles away from home where you don't speak the language and you have very little like orientation in terms of like where you are, how to get around. I love that feeling. Yeah. That's amazing. But knowing what little I know, you know, it's like alluded to a little bit in your book about your personal history and your family history. Your parents came over from Vietnam. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense of uprootedness, a sense of not having, like not knowing which place is home. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I have some of that, but in a different way, just because I moved around. You know, I don't have like a like a strong sense of like this is the place because I lived in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And now I'm in Los Angeles, where I feel like a visitor in some way or something. I always have this sense of like I'm I'm here temporarily or I'm visiting. And, yeah. So I don't know. You and I are the same. Like I like to go have that feeling of not knowing where I am. And maybe it heightens the senses in the way that like a good painting does, you know, when you're in a place, like when you can't speak the language, especially like it just shuts down so much, (laughs) like so much about how you normally relate to your environment, you know, like it just, it forecloses on all that. And suddenly it's like you're pantomiming and you're looking at things and maybe you're listening, but you can't quite understand. So you have to look extra carefully to understand like tone and what mm-hmm. people's body language is you know what i'm you know what i'm saying like yeah yeah i mean that reminds me of the, uh, the other major place that we both of us actually forgot about which is um my time in france oh right uh, right yeah yeah which i mean it's funny because we were just talking about haunted but yeah when i when i lived in france and i was i was there for like two month long ish sessions two years apart like first as a student and then as um like a sort of instructor mom <laughs> manager figure (laughs) like camp counselor Um, yeah kind of (laughs) nurse (laughs) um therapist yeah when i was when i was there like i do not speak french do not read french have a very poor working vocabulary of french and but you know it was a very small town and i yeah i felt my whole like kind of mental apparatus kind of shifting to accommodate that and it was really it was really great I mean I I like to think that my French improved a little bit while I was there because I was trying but then the moment I got home there was this huge sense of relief when like the street signs were in English (laughs) I was just like oh my god like thank goodness but I mean I I don't know if if you have felt this way or if like other people feel this way but I have like I would say like five to ten percent fluency and like a handful of languages but what that means is that like when I am speaking a language it's like I pull open a drawer and there's like different words for yes in different languages and I have to cycle through them I'm like oh Vietnamese no French no Spanish no like Japanese no until I and I figure out like which one it is that I need for the situation yeah I'm, I'm that way in French and Spanish and I feel like yeah all that it really affords me is the opportunity to sound like a fool in two different languages like yeah and you, you talk about the feeling of relief I mean I think for people who are writerly in particular you know, language is maybe extra important to ourselves and our sense of identity or something. And, you know, expressive people, you know, people who are into using language and expressing themselves with it and all this stuff, like you take that away and it's really, really strange and destabilizing to not be able to be articulate, you know, (laughs) like, and to have like just this very like streamlined vocabulary you know, where you're basically talking like a second grader or something, you know, or even like maybe a kindergartner. Like that's kind of how I feel when I'm in France. Like, yeah, I can yeah. just be like, this is good. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's nice because it kind of, and I guess this is kind of where it's similar to, to I don't know, looking at art or looking at things is you become more of an observer. You have to. So you are from the Pacific Northwest. Yes. And grew up in what? Portland? Yeah, Portland. All like all your childhoods, so your your folks came over from Vietnam, 
And... Yeah, so they they met in the States, but they, they met in Portland, and I basically grew up there and lived there until I was 17, and then I went to the East Coast for college, and I've I've been on the East Coast ever since. So what was it like to grow up in Portland? I feel like it must have changed so much in your lifetime. I feel like that's a place that's really... Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I had a pretty idyllic, by most standards, childhood. Like, spent a lot of time outside, like, did learn the name of plants and animals, went on my little hikes, like, went backpacking. Yeah, I mean... It's Portland is a really good place for a kid to grow up, I would say. I think I had like the right amount of like progressive like politics. I mean, I don't know, like it's I mean, it is a majority white city. So you are going to run into that sort of like, uh, like neoliberal, like kind of like granola, whatever crunchy politics that like is maybe not super helpful but you know it's very aesthetic anyway i'm ranting um, <laughs> like you'll run into that but you know i also like was fortunate to like have a relatively diverse like classroom but yeah the, the city has changed quite a bit and it's kind of interesting like what gentrification has done to it and then also what like some pretty intense like political clashes between protesters and the police have also have also done. I'm not super plugged into like the activist scene there, but I, I have known that like it's it's been like pretty heated. Yeah, we have friends up there yeah. and you know, it seems like it's been kind of a locus for yeah, yeah. certain kinds of conflict between like police and then also between like, you know, Antifa and MAGA and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, and, there's like a huge like alt right presence like in Oregon more generally. So right, I don't right. know. There, there's quite a bit of tension. Yeah, but you've been on the East Coast. Like you went what you went to Yale for college. Like so yeah, you, you leave Portland, you go to Connecticut, and go to school there, and then you've been in New York ever since. Yeah, yeah. And you don't see yourself going back. Like you're you're East Coast now. Um, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. I do love. The West Coast, I have found myself actually really missing the Pacific Northwest and like the landscapes there. Like I've been getting a little bit more outdoorsy lately and my partner and I went for like a hike a couple weekends. Well, no, last weekend. And like it was nice, but I was like thinking to myself, I was like, oh, like it's not really old growth forest. Like it's not, like, <laughs> it's not like a rainforest. Like these trees are so small, you know. Like I was like thinking these really uncharitable thoughts, and then we like got to the top of the mountain, and of course it was beautiful. But I was just like, mm, that's just like not what I grew up with. Right, so right. I do, right. I do miss that. And you know, you trained as a visual artist. Yeah. So you have this double major. You kind of, I, I guess, probably aspired to be a painter in your college years right you thought that was the track you were on I don't know if I ever thought I was going to professionally be an artist I think um I don't know it's so interesting college is such an interesting time because you do so many things that like you know you're not going to do after that time but they're like the most important things in the world um and like Yale has an incredible studio art program like always has um and like once I started taking classes, like, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, the community here is amazing. Like, 
everyone is like really rigorous, really smart, really talented. Like I really want to like work in this program. So I basically became an art major because I wanted to like keep having that community and I wanted to be able to make work and make paintings like in a studio space, like at scale, like with support, like knowing that that was like maybe going to be one of the only times in my life that I could do that. So like when I was a senior and like I had my thesis show and like I did someone did ask me to to do a show um after I graduated and I ended up showing some thesis work but I was never like this is going to be my career like this is what I'm going to do like I just knew that I was I was an okay painter I, I don't think I was like bad but I was always doing these things simultaneously and like I, I still consider myself like a very visual person and like I do have like ways of keeping it alive for myself but I think like it's like if you have to choose like the capitalist hell you want to enter like is it publishing or is it like trying to get like gallery representation okay like uh, this is what i was just going to ask you because i feel like <laughs> publishing is a convoluted you know what a weird you know business environment to try to navigate when you're just starting out and even when you're further along you know like how do you get an agent how do you sell a book all these different questions that people have I am often mystified by how art stars are made, like visual art stars. And like I love I love your characterization of it, like pick which capitalist hell you want to enter. Uh I have lately been telling myself and again, I'm always wrong about everything, so I'm sure there's some element of this that that is wrong-headed, but just follow along with me for one second. I am often telling myself that like achieve like high achievement in the arts is often and maybe even predominantly predicated on social achievement more than it is on aesthetic or creative achievement. Like I think about how like an art star is made. It's like almost like, um, like you got to meet the right people, go to the right parties, charm people. Like I think of like, think of like Basquiat meeting Andy Warhol, like going up to him as he's enjoying his lunch and being like, here, you know, like look at my paintings or whatever happened. You know, I, I might be messing up the lore, but, if I did that, Andy Warhol would be like, no, thanks. Get out of here. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, I would fail that social test, I think. I'm not good at that, like pressing myself in front of people and asking them to champion me or, you know, to look at my stuff. But am I crazy? Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, do you think that there's some element of truth to what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are definitely roots. And I think, I mean, so, so many aspects of like the culture industry just come down to like who you know which I don't like saying because I I also think like good work will I mean if it's if someone wants to put it in the world like it will find a way um just might be a long route but uh, yeah at the same time I mean I don't know like it was just very unfathomable to me like this idea of like being someone who would paint for a living or like, and I don't know, I think, I think I, I love painting, but I don't, I just don't see myself as the kind of person who like spends hours and hours in the studio, like working on things to show and then like expecting to sell them. Like, that's not really the relationship I have with it. And like, now that I say that, I'm like, Ooh, it'd be kind of sexy to like have a studio and like go there like eight hours a day oh my and then God. come home and work on like my little short story collection. Um, but I, I don't have, that kind of money. <laughs> um, well, and also, you know, but it only really takes one really rich champion to like get the process started, yeah. at least in, as far as my understanding of it goes. And like, like a popular example of this, 
who I'm like kind of in awe of because I'm a big fan of hers is, and I think a lot of, most everybody's a big fan of Cindy Sherman. Like she's, her work is just like so, um, I don't know. It's just like fascinating. It's so good. <laughs> I'm terrible at talking about this, but I think what's interesting to me is that she kind of came out of the box with this as her, like the area of exploration that she was interested in. She was always going to do these like self portraits and do this, like the, the self makeup and everything. And it was just like one of these ideas that was like, I don't know. It, it, it worked from the beginning and it was seen as far as I know, like she got a gallery or a gallerist or however this works. And she got like, like big time support pretty quickly. Like her work was received well, almost instantly. I could be totally messing this up, but I feel like sometimes people catch that wave like right mm -hmm. away yeah. and, it, and it just keeps going, <laughs> but that's the rarity. Yeah, I mean, I, I have peers who, who are like that. Like I think having gone to Yale, like I, I got to see like some people in like the masters, like the MFA program, like their stars all like really rose, you know, like, but it's like, Oh, but you have to, you have to get into, Yale. <laughs> you know, like there's still like a very labyrinthine path, but yeah, I mean, you know, someone like Jenny Savile, who who I did write about, and I think I even mentioned in the book, I'm like, yeah, like, basically, she got support from, like, Scotchy and, like, has been doing great ever since. She does the, she does, like, the, the portraits of the bloody faces or whatever? Or like... Yeah, yeah, and, like, the, the big figures and, like, flayed meat and, like, various other kinds of sort of bodily work, yeah. It's good. I it's really it. good. Yeah, she's like, a fantastic painter. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is like this is fabulous. You can sort of see it, you know, but I guess it's like, it's an interesting question to apply to any, any art, whether it's literature or visual art or whatever. It's like how it happens, you know, and how the culture picks certain artists and kind of holds them up. I have conversations about this with book people all the time. Like why do certain mm -hmm. books and certain writers, it's like the culture's ready for them or they fill some sort of slot yeah um, totally you know and other other writers who are spectacular in my view at least struggle to find any readers at all or any embrace at all and maybe what we were talking about earlier with regard to photography and how there's just like this saturation point or something maybe that that same sort of rubric could be applied to like all all media <laughs> like there's so much yeah, of everything nowadays saturation uh, yeah for I mean, there's sure. so many books so many essays so many photographs so many movies like all you got to do is scroll through netflix for 20 minutes and just you're like oh forget it like i can't even figure out what you know what to watch and most nights i just fall asleep like scrolling <laughs> That's yeah all I need. yeah we're so, going dangerously close to this drum that I love beating, which is like, I wish everyone would make less stuff and just make it with more care. Yeah. It's like, it's like too much. I guess it's like too much for everybody to parse. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of a miracle when anything cuts through like squid game, like occasionally. Yeah. And, and the thing about it that's interesting is that you always sort of know when something does cut through because it seems like rare, but there's like this unanimity or this, you know, some approximation of unanimity among the culture that like, this is the thing. And I think what's interesting about Squid Game, and I say this having not had the chance to watch it yet, is that there seems to be like cross-cultural unanimity. Like this isn't mm -hmm. just like an American phenomenon. It's like the whole world likes this. Yeah. I'm excited yeah. to watch it just to figure out why, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it. I'm I'm not really great with um, scenes of violence, which may or may not surprise people who know my work. 
but I mean, I think allegorically it's like pretty strong and conceptually it's super strong. So I can see why it would draw such a, such a big audience. Oh wait, is it violent? Like it's like, dark, is it dark violence? Like, uh, I, I think it is kind of dark. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a real weenie, so I don't, so am you I. might want to. No, so am I. I can't fall asleep if it's like, like I used to be able to watch these things, but ever since I had kids, I think, I don't know what it is. I've become more sensitive. And then like, I just have trouble sleeping if I watch like really disturbing stuff right before I go to bed. Like I need to have breakfast and watch squid game, <laughs> like let myself yeah. process it and then like watch some yeah. cartoons or something before bed. Yeah. Like, that's kind of where I'm at emotionally. Well, maybe, maybe that'll be the way that you can, uh, you can consume it. <laughs> So you are like nowadays, like writing, obviously publishing books. Like you said you were working on the crisis line, but that sounded like it was in the rearview mirror. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I left that job to focus on writing more full time. I'm really grateful for my time at, at this particular agency where I was like, I met some really amazing people and like, you know, I, I, I will always love temping or working part time at a nonprofit. But yeah, that was, it was time to say goodbye. So I left that job in like 2018, I want to say. Yeah. And you've been quarantining in Brooklyn. Did you write, I guess you had some of this stuff written already, but you wrote, you kind of finished the book out and wrote some of the essays while you were quarantined. Yeah. 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 The bulk of it was written. I would say I had maybe like generously 10%, which was still going to be like pretty remixed and everything ahead of time like that was published or had been seen and then a little bit more that had been written but yeah the bulk of it was written from like january to june yeah that's interesting i feel like i wrote my book during that same period or like finished it out like what is it about did quarantine give you better focus like did you find yourself it absolutely did i mean that like it was horrible in a lot of ways i think the early days of quarantine when like we didn't really know what was going on and it was really scary like with the ambulances and like people were working so hard and you know i i know it was really really hard for a lot of people but at the same time there was this kind of like i don't know there was this sense of like okay the only way that i can be useful in this situation is to stay home and there was like this kind of like transcendent quiet that that i would kind of be part of um because I had no real option and I think in the in the spring when it got warmer and like in the summer like it was the longest summer of my life I was outside every day um biking everywhere like getting really strong going to protests all of that but before that like it was such a quiet period everyone was inside I mean not everyone but you know many people that I knew and yeah I mean what else could you do but write <laughs> I also wonder about all the books and the art that uh, were made during that, you know, especially that early window of time, like that first, you know, six to 12 months of the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe especially when things weren't quite as clear about how the virus operated and like, there's, there's like going to be a whole, like, there's gonna be a whole wave of art that was made in that window. And I wonder what commonalities the yeah. art will share in retrospect. You know, I guess we'll leave that to art historians and literary historians and everything else. But I feel like there's going to be like there are going to be ties that bind when it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, I read um, Kate Zambrino's new book to write as already as if already dead, which was also written during the same time. And yeah, there there's there's something I don't know. 
It's a very specific energy. And I mean, it's, it's incredible because it was something that the whole world experienced together. Do you feel like you were more fearless on the page? Like you, you talked about it at the beginning of our conversation a little bit about like, just kind of going for it. You know, like I'm, I'm inside. I've, you know, like you said, the best thing I can do is stay inside. I'm going to write this and I'm just going to speak my truth. Do you think that the pandemic helped you to be more candid or anything like that? Or were you, were you that way anyway? That's a great question. I surprisingly, no one has asked, has asked me that. I don't, I don't think so. I think maybe the pandemic allowed me the time to go as deep as I needed to. Like, I don't know. I don't know if the book would have gotten written the way that it did if I had been like going out for drinks and like, you know, like going to readings and like traveling and like, you know, like, oh, like maybe I'll do like, no, like it would, it wouldn't have gotten done the way that it did. Um, and it was funny because when I was first talking to Jonathan, my editor, he was like, oh, okay. So if we want this to come out like in 2021, you're going to have to write this really fast because we got a new distributor. And I was like, that seems like a lot. But then lo and behold, I had all the time in the world suddenly. But, but no, I think, I think the, the way that the pandemic maybe opened my soul was more in terms of thinking like, well, what do I value? Like what is meaningful to me? Like what has been carved away? And like, as we're kind of half emerging out of it, like what, what do I want to retain from this time? What do you want to retain? Like, what have we learned? You know, like I think about this too, you know, like you would hope that we're going to draw some valuable lessons and maybe change for the better. But like, personally, do you have a sense of like how you're going to be in the world, especially once we get this thing behind us? Yeah, I think I, I'm still trying to figure out if it's like I want to be better at saying yes or no to things, which I think means I want to be better about like regulating my time. But I think I think in general, just being more deliberate, more deliberate and, and thoughtful about things is coming to mind. And I think spending more time outside and like doing things that are free and I guess not relying on like social social structures that I think I took for granted, realized I didn't need. And then when reopening happened, kind of slipped back into without, without questioning like things that I'm like, Oh, I don't really need to like go to dinner with like, you know, all, all these people and like do these things. Like maybe it's better if I like hang out with people one-on-one, -on -one, for example, or like, Oh, like, do I really need to like go to like a happy hour every day or something, you know, like things like that, where it's like, you know, like this was the way of life before, but is it, does it have to be the way of life now? Yeah. The speed of things is what yeah. I find myself challenged by because I feel like the ordinary pace of life, especially like living in a city like New York or Los Angeles, like it's like uh, getting carried away by a wave. You know what I'm saying? Like I, yeah. I found myself slowed down by the pandemic and then, you know, then things sort of like sneak up on you and start to speed up again. And we went away for a little bit this summer and I felt myself slow down and I was like, okay, I've got to capture this feeling and then come back and try to like integrate it into my life a little bit better and just be a little bit more chill. And I don't know, just not so harried. And then there'll be times I find myself right, right back in it. So I hear yeah. you. It's, it comes down Lo to like old. being aware of your, being aware of your space and your time. And 
I don't know. You got to kind of fight for it too, in a way. You have to be a little bit stubborn sometimes, I think, to to have time to do the things that you need as a person, maybe especially as a creative person. But hopefully, I don't know, hopefully we'll come out of this for the better. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds like you're totally devoted to, uh, you know, different modes of thinking when it comes to like capitalism and the way that we organize ourselves economically. Like, I hope that we can rethink that stuff too. That's definitely on my mind. Like I, yeah. like I don't know what the answers are. Like I'm not a guy who has like the answer, but I am a guy who's like, we should, why, why aren't we questioning this more? Like, is this working? <laughs> it feels like totally. the, the pandemic made a lot of people reevaluate that, which maybe in some ways might be the best part about the whole thing. If you're looking for silver linings, like how many people do you know who had like a massive reorienta- reorientation to the workplace? Like, yeah, that yeah, really happened yeah. in mass. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I think so many people were radicalized and it's really inspiring that like a lot of Gen Z has kind of taken that up too. But yeah, it's, it's something that I've also like really been interested in like talking about, like when I'm talking about this book and stuff, because it's like, you know, the things that allowed me to write this are the things that I wish everyone could have just like time and, and space and, you know, enough cash to like get through to the next creative period. And it was, so, did you sell this book on proposal? I did. I, I sold it on a proposal. Um, so I, I really did write most of it. And when I did submit, like I also rewrote. So, and it's not the kind of thing that I could have written by myself. Like I could have, but you know, if I was like pitching and, you know, writing a couple pieces every month to kind of like cover the difference. Like I wouldn't have been able to sit down and focus. Sure. And do you think that the, the, the age that you are and the time that you came of age in kind of performing yourself online on Tumblr, like, you know, doing this like public diary, I feel like being of that generation and sort of growing up online might give you like a great, it seems like it would give you a greater degree of comfort in like personal, when it comes to personal exposure than maybe older people might have. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe like that's just the water that you swim in. Like you've been doing this since you were a teenager, right? Like with some degree of comfort. Like I don't know how revelatory your, your earliest Tumblr posts were, but do you understand what I'm getting at? Like, do you think that like there's something generational about that? And do you think that maybe Gen Z has a greater comfort level? Totally. So- yeah. I think, I mean, I think Gen Z, like if it's like I got in the pool when I was like young enough to learn how to swim, but like Gen Z was like born in the pool, like made of the pool, has known nothing other than the pool. Right. Um, Wait, what so, generation are you? I don't even know. Like, uh, I, would... I, I would consider myself a millennial. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, and... I'm 28. I'm I'm turning 29 in December. Oh, uh, so young. Well, yeah, I, I am I am quite young, but sometimes things happen and I feel very old. Sure. Um, but I think that's just the nature of time passing. But yeah, I think, I think, I think people of my sort of generational milieu have are are comfortable with the idea that like there's a self that you have and then there's a self that you like present to others and that self can be online. 
in in a in a way where it's like you know you're funny or you do your jokes on Twitter or like you know you post you post things about your life on Instagram and, and people see them and they come to an opinion about you in a way that feels very innate. Um, but I, yeah, I think I think Gen Z has an even deeper and and more fluid relationship to to the internet and these platforms that I think is probably both good and bad, like, like all things. Yeah. I think about, I mean, what I'm amazed by just looking at my kids and again, I'm going to sound old, but like, is how intuitively they yeah. figure out the mission. Like we didn't ever give my daughter lessons on how to use an iPad. She's already like way better at it than I am. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I don't know how she even figures out half the things she knows how to do, but they, they know. And I, I don't know. Some part of it scares me. I don't think I'm going to let her have a smartphone. I'm going to be that dad. I'm going to be the dad who's like, <laughs> nope, you get a flip phone until you go to college. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I just, I feel like these, I feel like the social media, like this stuff about like, you know, Instagram being toxic for teenagers. And yeah. I just feel like there's too many downsides, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm sure she's going to win that battle if we have a negotiation. I don't want her to be like the one kid at school with the flip phone. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could have a flip, flip, flip phone at this point, but. Yeah, me too. You know, yeah. I mean, so, there's nothing stopping me again. I just, there's something inside me that won't let me do it. You, you know <laughs> so what's stopping me is the, is the photos, is the photos and the GPS. Mm -hmm. Cause I use the, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I want to take pictures of my kids when the mood strikes, even though I'm never going to look at them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe they will, you know what I'm saying? Like I do feel yeah. some obligation to take photos. And then I also, I do use the GPS. I don't even know how I would get anywhere. I guess I would have to get a car with like a GPS in it, but my car currently does not have that. So we'll see. But it's on my list of things to do is to get rid of the smartphone. I got rid of social media, but now I've got to, you know, further, I've got to distance myself further from modern society. <laughs> yeah. I, I went offline when I was, when I was writing the book and frankly, I wish I could have stayed offline. I kind of went half back on to like do my little capitalist song and dance, which I think I've done kind of like... <laughs> At times resentfully and at other times maybe kind of pleadingly, such such as life. But I think I would I would like to get back off. Yeah. You feel I feel, yeah. you know, it it definitely takes some stress out of your life and I don't know, opens up space. So much of yeah. so much of my life is spent like I'm off of social media, but I still online go to Twitter just to like read the internet, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I yeah. read There's it. So many people's thoughts. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know if this is how, like this, the volume of it. And yet I, you know, I still do it. And I feel like you should write a book about capitalism. I feel like that's gnawing at you and I need somebody to explain it to me. Um, I, well, I, I'm kind of tangling with it right now. I'm, I'm working on a historical novel at, from about around 1954 through to like 2014 or so, um, starting in Vietnam. So it's, it's kind of like trying to figure out like the relationship to capitalism and communism and, and America and like being like the daughter of like refugees and like it's all all of those complicated feelings. So it's not really my capitalism book, but it's 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 something that I find myself politically grappling with in the text. Yeah, it's in there. But that's good though. Maybe it's yeah. good to come at it like from an angle. Uh, you know, other, yeah, it's other, fiction. It's a novel. So how far along are you? I, I feel like not, I'm asking you not a, super, 
I'm like asking you about a pregnancy yeah, well, or something. I, oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm about like, I would say, um, no, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in school right now. I'm, I'm getting my MFA, so I'm, I'm working on it. So I like, I'm happy talking about it because it's like right now at this point, it's just like a manuscript. Um, but I'm a couple chapters in and I've done some revisions already. So I, I have a clearer sense of, of where it's going, but that doesn't mean I have a sense at all. Okay. Yeah. I mean, these things can mutate, right? They, they take a... Yeah. So quickly. Well, I loved reading pop song and uh, love talking with you and getting to know you. I feel like this is like a really beautiful snapshot of you, what, in your like late teens and twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And you captured... Thanks for pointing out the uh, the 10 years because I feel like a lot of people think it's a book about college, but it's it's not really... <laughs> No, it, it's, you know, it's a, it's about you and your evolution into adulthood, really. And yeah, yeah, it's about like trying to figure out, um, I mean, a lot of different things, intimacy among them, maybe. And I don't know, it just felt true to life. And it's like deeply felt and um, deeply intelligent. Like I said, I had to use like the internet a lot to figure out what you were talking about, which I always appreciate <laughs> in a book just to like, you know, give myself like a little bit of an art history lesson. And you also reference, you know, some of our authors that I've had on this show, like Maggie Nelson and Leslie Jameson. Um, I'm trying to think of who else is in there. Sarah Manguso. I feel like she's kind of in there with those guys. Yeah, she is, is she yeah. in the book too? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those I feel like those authors often get lumped together in conversation, you know, I'm sure there's a good reason why, but they're all great writers and super smart and widely read. So anyway, there's a lot going on in this book and I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Good luck. Where, where are you getting your MFA? Are you in New York getting it? Um, I'm, it's, it's a low residency program, but I'm at Bennington. Oh, you are. Okay. So yeah. good luck with your MFA. Good luck with your historical novel. Good luck solving, solving the riddle of capitalism. Please let me know what you find out. <laughs> I mean, I'm hopeful that, you know, as, as consciousness continues to kind of turn in this direction that I don't know, maybe there'll be like a really amazing uprising that we can all be part of. Come on, Gen Z, like show us I know, the way. That's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larissa, thank you so much again. Congrats on the book and thank best you. of luck on all that comes next. Thank you so much. It was so great to chat. Okay. There you go. That is Larissa Pham. Her new memoir in essays is called Pop Song, available from Catapult. You can find Larissa online at larissafam.com. Her Twitter handle is at LRSPHM. I should also add that she is the author of a book called Fantasian, which I think she referenced in the conversation. That is available from Badlands Unlimited. But uh, once again, the new one is called Pop Song. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Don't forget to support the show over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. If you have something to say to me, you can email the show at letters at other P-P-L dot com. You can follow the show on Twitter at other P-P-L or on Instagram at other P-P-L dot podcast. The show's official website is other P-P-L dot com. You can listen 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or on the show's official YouTube channel. Search for the show by name over at YouTube, Other PPL, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app wherever you get apps. I should add that if you have the app, and if the app has in recent times been glitchy for you, there is a fix. We've had the app fixed. What you need to do now is delete the app off of your device and then go to the App Store and re-upload it, and you'll get the new version. Everything's free. So, it's already Thanksgiving almost? How is that real? A lot of good shows in the pipeline. Excited to share them with you. Hope you're doing okay. If you're not doing okay, hang in there. If you're doing better than okay... (laughs) 